Old news, hot takes. Welcome to Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. So tonight, we're going to be discussing several old stories from history uh, and putting our Dad Bod spin on them. Uh, but before we get into that, how was your week? How was your weekend? How you doing, Eric? Any stories from the Dad Front? Yes, I have a great story. I have a great oh. story. First of all, let's just remember, everyone, it's summer. I barely know what day it is. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Um, on Friday, our new dog, Oreo, formerly known by the name of Odin. How did that happen? How did it change? Well, because our son's yeah. name sounds like Odin. And we couldn't change my son's name. So. So. Okay. Couldn't do that. But. Okay. He had his uh, his little surgery on Friday. Odin. Okay, well, yeah. formerly Odin. So he's formerly Odin. He now has to go by Oreo because Odin sounds like my son's name, Owen. Mm-hmm. And nobody wanted to change my son's name. So he had his, his little surgery on Friday, right? And we had to... My son is very curious about everything. And that's great. But when we explained that he had to have surgery, my son was very intent on being like, well, why does he have to have surgery? Mm-hmm. So my wife explained to him, well, he has to have surgery because he's, um, well, first of all, he's like, what is he going to, what's the surgery for? And my wife explained, well, it's going to remove, you know, the testicles, right? They're going to be mm-hmm. flipped out and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But she had to use different terminology. So we went with balls. And <laughs> so... Then he asked why. And it's like, well, because as a boy dog, he's going to get frustrated because he, you know, he's going to want to to mate. And he's, Mm -hmm. you know, all these things, he's going to get angry. He's going to get aggressive. And my son says, will I get frustrated when I get older? (laughs) More than you could possibly imagine. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I think most boys, um, understand this. Most men understand that. You're but then he learn. goes around yeah. and he said, and then he says, am I going to have to have that surgery? So no, 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 you won't. But then every time he has the opportunity to explain this, what happened to our dog, he is very clear. They had to take his balls so he wouldn't get frustrated. And that's how he explains it to everybody. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, it's not I'm bad. Just... Well, it's not that's bad. That's awesome. Will I get frustrated? And of course, it's like... the dog is... Oh, yeah, but... <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, how about you? How was your week, weekend? Uh, the week was good. It was busy. I've been biking a lot. Um which is really nice. I don't have a gym membership. Haven't had one since COVID. Um, and so and I don't really want to get one again, but I want to stay fit and healthy. So uh, last year I bought a bike, like a Schwinn from Target. Um, so just a real basic kind of hybrid bike from Target. And um during the summers, I've been riding quite a bit. And so I've been rode about 
think at least three times last week and it's been really, really good. Um, uh, but yeah, nothing, nothing too exciting. We had a pretty relaxed weekend. Um, it's been really busy with work. So we wanted to just kind of take it easy for a weekend. The summer has been so busy for us, uh, in general, um, we've had stuff going on. It feels like every single week and every single weekend this summer. So this is one of the first weekends where we didn't have anything going on and we weren't about to mess that up by doing stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just a really nice Makes relaxing sense. weekend. Yeah. It's some, it's so funny, you know, when you're a teacher, it's a little different, but even, even when you're on summer break as a teacher, stuff just happens and fills up your weeks off. And obviously I'm not a teacher anymore, but so I, I get, you know, I still have my regular work week, but the kids are on break. And but even then just stuff keeps coming up and it's not bad stuff, you know, but like you, you go, you get to the end of summer, you're like, was that a vacation? Like, was that supposed to be a break? Cause it didn't feel like one. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at. So we really just enjoyed not doing anything this weekend. Yeah, we find that we can't sit down in our living room anymore because the dog barks at us. The new one. So it's hard to relax. Yeah. But then, yeah, I mean, today I went to Home Depot, you know, as dads do. As I bought a bunch of lumber because I'm, I'm, I'm building a loft for my daughter's bed. So I bought all like the lumber college? for that. And then in the midst, oh, kind of like, like when we were in college, basically just for the bed. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I'm, I'm going through this process thinking I don't have the expertise to build this. In college, I built a loft that we slept four people on. We absolutely I mean, did not have We did it then. Yeah. Yeah. How bad? I, how hard can I don't it be? even know how that thing stayed yeah. up <laughs> for four years or however many years we had it. I had two years in that room, but, um, yeah, it's kind of wild, but yeah, we're, we're building her a loft. And then in the midst of this process of planning what I needed, my wife says, well, you know, we can get these things out of the hallway if we build the shelves in the laundry room. So then I whipped up another lumber list and bought even more stuff. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I spent, I spent quite a bit at Home Depot today. But it felt good to spend it. Like I was going yeah. out of there with lumber and like wood Looking screws, like a real man, countersink drill bits, and oh, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, drip drip system I bet tubing. People were impressed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the I went to the self checkout lane, pulled up, and ladies like, I'll check this out for you. I'll I'll, I'll use a scanner on this because you obviously okay. know what you're doing. Can't be wasting yeah, your time self-checking out. Grabbing each piece <laughs> and trying to scan it over the thing. <laughs> We've got a gun for that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to be yeah. doing that next week or the coming week sometime. It'll be fun. It'll be good. It's great that you got this brand new construction home, you know, built house. And you've done more projects on this new house than I think you ever did. Oh, yeah. Any of the other houses you've lived at. Yeah, I'm I guess it's not sure true because you and your dad in this house. the kitchen. Yeah. There's a hole in every stud in this house, though, now. I put holes in every single yeah. one. Yeah. Just. Good. 
Just so I know where they all are. Well, just I mean, case. it's also a power move. You, Yeah, you let them know who's boss when you do that. <laughs> so that's good. These are mine. I'm the stud here. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's oh, so bad. <sighs> so, all right. So tonight, let's uh, we're get into this. Gonna just, just talk some stories. Yeah, and I don't know what to call this segment. I don't know what to call it old old ta- uh, old news hot takes or just call it old takes or historical breakdown ancient history i don't know but we're going oh, to just take five kind of well it doesn't mean ancient but just i don't know i just know what the theme the topic but for now we'll just call it old takes new spin there you go that that's what that's what this segment is we're just going to go five i think three to five stories tonight and uh just kind of talk about them what they were and uh Kind of our general thoughts on it. I like it. So you said you have a couple, Eric. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to lead off? Well, let me tell one story to start. By all means. So I've been looking into stuff in World War II, and I wanted to make some videos on these. And there's these two stories that have a similarity, and both are from World War II, and both are from near the end of World War II. And the first one okay. is the Battle of Castle Itter. I-T-T-E-R, or um, okay. I forget what the, the the German name would be for, like, Itterberg or something. Anyways, it's the battle for... Oh, that's the English name. Jeez. Um, castle Itter um, is this castle in Austria, and there's this battle that took place there in early May of 1945. And there was a, t- a U.S. tank battalion kind of operating there. You know, Austria is one of those places where the United States... As per, um, not the Tehran conference, but the uh, Yalta conference, had come to an agreement that, like, Austria would be under the influence of the Western allies, where Czechoslovakia would be under the influence of the Soviets after the war. Mm-hmm. But there's this castle in it called Itter Castle, and... The Germans, after they had taken over Austria in 1938, claimed that castle for the German government. It was going to be used by the German government, and its owner was basically informed, we're going to lease it from you officially for official government business. And so they told him that, but it wasn't until like 1943 that they actually took control of it. And that was under orders of Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler, who was the head of the SS. And they, they mm-hmm. took the castle in 1943 and by the end of April had turned it into a prison. And it was going to be under the administration of the Dachau Tracks. Uh, prison a concentration camp. Like, you know, these are all different organizations. Yeah. And one of the things they did at this castle, was they put a bunch of high profile prisoners, especially from France, into this new prison, this Castle Itter. What happens at Castle Itter that's significant or different is that a battle breaks out there and it's it's led by this American tank battalion and the commander, John Lee. But there's a, there's, there's more than just French prisoners there by 1945. There's Yugoslav resistance sure. members, um, there's and and they're kind of like put into jobs in the prisons, um, 
and right in early May, so this is May 5th, Hitler is dead. The war is going to end in three days. Mm-hmm. But some of the prisoners in the castle find a way to get out and locate the Allies, especially the Americans, to help them take the castle. And so the Americans kind of turn themselves to go to the castle with the armored division, the armored uh, battalion. And they run into, um, they run into these other units, some of whom are uh, German Wehrmacht, which is a German army. And Mm -hmm. what happens here at the Battle of Itter is that the Waffen SS, the hardcore Nazi military wing Mm -hmm. holds the castle and attempts to hold the castle against, um, or sorry, the, the castle is kind of like overthrown. The Waffen SS is outside the castle trying to take it back. The ones who've taken the castle are members of the German Wehrmacht. And with the assistance of the Americans, they hold off the Waffen SS. So what you have here at the battle of castle Itter is you have Americans, Germans, and even a few defecting SS members fighting and and includes Austrian resistance members, French prisoners fighting against German SS military. And so it's one of these two circumstances in which Germans and Americans fought side by side during World War II, both times against hardcore Nazi SS elements. What was the other instance? Well, that's the other story. That's Operation Cowboy. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's our teaser. So Operation Cowboy, okay. and I, you know, um, I'll just get into Operation Cowboy as well. So this one's a little bit, this mm-hmm. one has a bit more to it because it goes back to like the 1500s. So in the 1500s, those of you that are aware of how things have tied together. Austria and Spain are closely knit as far as as the Holy Roman Empire goes. And in the 1500s, in Austria, in Vienna, there's a school that started called the Spanish Riding School. And this is where they are going to train people how to ride horses. And one of the breeds they're going to use are the Lipizzaners, which are these famous, like, all white horses, they're very like their temperament is perfect for training and doing these these tricks and like these these jumps into the air. And so that is founded in Vienna in the 1500s, and it exists there through 1938. And in 1938, and in a few years later, the Germans take over. One of the things the Germans want to do is they take the Vienna Riding School or the Spanish uh, Riding School in Vienna. And they they take some horses from it because, no surprise, the Nazis want to breed a more Aryan horse. Of course they do. So they they basically transfer a bunch of these Lipizzaners to this village called Hostau. So wait, wait, wait. The all-white horses weren't white enough? Uh, They weren't Aryan enough. Maybe their eyes weren't blue. Um, (laughs) So they take them to this village near Hostau in Czechoslovakia. And there's a couple of reasons they take them there. One is Vienna is a big city. It's going to be t- 
targeted and they just want another place where they can do these, like this experimental farm. And so, um, there's, there's this person called Alois, uh, Pajoski, who is the head of the school. And he's like, he's a German horseman. He's, he's into dressage. He was, he's a bronze medalist from the 1936 Olympics. Um, he was in the Austrian army. He had been in the Wehrmacht. He was a major. Um, and he even, I'm, I think he knew from like the Olympic days, George Patton. George Patton is a, is a horseman. Okay. George Patton competed. Yeah, in so the they Olympics may have competed against each other in the early Maybe. 1900s. Yeah. But I don't know if they could be against each other, but they knew each other. So Alois Pajaski is the yeah. head of this riding school. And in late 1945, okay. Hostau is not being bombed. They're not in threat. But like I said before, Czechoslovakia was set aside for the Soviets. <clears throat> so in late April, you have two things. You have a couple things going on. You have the Red Army, the Soviets just charging west out of Russia. <clears throat> and you have the, the Western allies, Britain and America and France, charging east. And they're in Austria, they're in southern Germany, and they're right across the border from Czechoslovakia. Like they've captured Nuremberg. And Patton has taken his third army and he, he kind of says, you know what? I'm going to try to take Prague. Because I know we're not supposed mm -hmm. to, but that gives us a bargaining chip. So, uh, but the finders keepers right. rule. So I'm going to take. I'm going to push on effect. to take Prague, and so they push ahead and they they start going this way towards Prague to try to race the Red Army to the city of Prague and take it. Well, what happens is that Alois Pajaski is there at the riding school, and there's a bunch of these German veterinarians at this farm. And they realize the situation they're in because a few months prior, a bunch of Lipizzaners and other well-trained horses at a school in Hungary had been taken by the Soviets and eaten. Oh, so these German, these are like uh, German Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Radovsky, Realizing that they have this problem, that the, it was the Royal Hungarian Lipizzaner collection was killed by the Soviets, the entire collection. And so there's mm -hmm. a Luftwaffe intelligence officer who ends up at Hostau at this time. Again, like Germany is falling apart. So these guys are just kind of ending up all over the place. And mm -hmm. he is there at the school. This guy's name is Lieutenant Colonel Walter Holters. And he's trying to set up an agreement with the Americans. Like they're trying to get in touch with the Americans because they really, they, they know the choice between the red army and the Americans. One is going to protect as much as possible. The other is going to destroy whatever it can. So they get in touch with the third army, specifically the 42nd cavalry Recon reconnaissance squadron. And, mm -hmm. um, basically said, hey, we need help. We have these Lipizzaners. We have 1,200 horses, I think like 400 of whom are Lipizzaners. We want to get them out of here but before the Soviets do. And so George Patton gets this idea from one of his staffers. And there's like the second cavalry group. It's supposed to be a mechanized unit, but all the officers are horsemen. And so George Patton, they say, hey, um, the guy put in charge of it is Captain Thomas Stewart. 
and uh, Major Robert Andrews, and they go to Pat and they say, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to punch a hole through German lines, get to Hostel, get these horses, and then ride them back. <clears throat> and if we have any vehicles, awesome. we can flank the, the formation of horses back to the lines. To kind of drive them. So they're like, all right, we'll do this. Well, they they end up with a bunch of scout cars, some chaffy light tanks, like basically what amounts to 325 men are part of this group. And what they're what they're worried about is they've got 20 miles to hostile and there are they know there's a German panzer division in the area. There's other German soldiers in there. Um, they're not sure what they're going to have to do to get there. But they punch the line. They got to hostile. When they're in hostile, they actually <laughs> they find that they've got a bunch of prisoners of war there. British, New Zealanders, French, Poles, Serbs are freed from this mm -hmm. camp. So they hand these prisoners, former prisoners of war, weapons to help them. And then mm -hmm. the Germans who are there surrender. And these are Germans who are in the regular army and the Luftwaffe, and they surrender. Because they know it's better to well, surrender to the and Americans they're overpowered. This is like, there's like a week and a half left of the war. Well, they yeah. surrender, but then the major and the captain decide, we need to get these Luftwaffe's out of here. They hand the weapons back to the Germans. They say, you're going to help sure. us. And they said, sure, we're going to do that. <clears throat> and they, they, so they've got all these former prisoners of war. They've got these German troops with them. They've got these Americans. They've got these light tanks. And then in comes a Cossack prince, Asimov. Okay, so he's a Cossack prince. He was fighting for the Germans because he's an anti-communist. Right. The Cossacks are like, yeah, I don't know if they were loyal to the czar, like going back to it, but they were anti-communists. They were fighting the Soviets they were fighting with the Germans. And he's got the first Cossack cavalry division, which are Germans. There, and he says, yeah, we'll help you, too. So now you have this motley crew, including <laughs> awesome. a Cossack prince, a bunch of uh, Australians and New Zealanders or sorry, British and New Zealanders and Germans. And they just drive these 1,200 horses back to American lines. Some of the horses are being ridden by officers. Other horses are either pregnant or too young. And so they're being put into trailers and being hauled back while being flanked by tanks and soldiers of a variety of nationalities armed to the teeth and just headed west. And so... This is a story of when Patton saved the Lippitz Honors, right? Because these were likely the last of them. And a lot of them ended up in the United States. A yeah. line of horse that goes back yeah. 400 years. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of kind of wild. It's, it, it's not just, it's so interesting because I think, as you know, I don't know if it's ironically or interestingly, I don't really like war movies. And part of the reason I don't really like war movies is because I've read a lot of the stories. And so I'm like, well, I know what's happening here. And so that doesn't really interest me. I don't need to see 10 
renditions of the Battle of the Bulge. It's just, I get it, you know. But then you tell me a story like this, and that's something I would watch. I would watch a six-episode or eight-episode miniseries of that because that's an incredible story from World War II that nobody so has it, any idea. It is about. a movie. Both of those were, but the horse one in particular. When was it made? Oh my gosh! Um, oh come on! I saw this recently. Um, yeah. While you look that up, that's what I'm saying. Like that's a compelling story. That it, it's not just a war story. I mean, it is. It's set in World War II, but like, there's something Miracle more there. of the White Stallions. And there's so much. Well, oh, that's a great. Name. I mean, when was that made? 1963. See, there you go. So that's probably why. I, I think made if you're going to reboot a movie, you could do that one. <laughs> of course. I mean, Disney owns anything, everything anyway, so they'll, they'll probably remake it. But that's what I'm saying. Like, you make that movie. Or you make that miniseries, come on, Netflix, Amazon Prime. Like, that's a great story that you could tell. That's why The Great Escape oh, yeah. is such a great movie. It's because, it, yeah, it's set in World War II, but it's not just about the war. Like, there's yeah. something more there. And I think that's what makes those type of war movies you really, know, really compelling. Steven Spielberg um, is a director, and, and a lot of people, he's done, he has a huge body I've of work. I've heard of him. You know what his first war movie was? Yeah. Saving was Private Ryan. Too far. Now, how many movies did he have set during World War II? I mean, Schindler's List, not a war movie. Um, but the, mm-hmm. the other one is Empire of the Sun. Which famously uh, has, oh, yeah? as a young boy, has a young Christian Bale. In it, who? Oh yeah, he's just a fantastic actor. Like just about everything I've seen him in. And Christian Bale's a great actor. And I we saw Thor yesterday, Love and Thunder. It's a good movie, but Christian Bale, man, he's just good. He's a good actor. Um, and I saw a preview mm-hmm. for him and something else that just looked really great. Like it looked like he did great work. Um, anyways, Empire of the Sun is, it's not a war movie. It's just set during the beginning of World War II in the Pacific. And it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's easy to get like war movies, right? It's a bunch of battle and stuff, but yeah. But there's something more there. You know, and it's funny, there's this movie, I don't know what came out in the 2010s, mm-hmm. Monument Men, where George Clooney basically ocean, the Nazis, ocean 11s, yeah. the Nazis, <laughs> and, and steals all that art. And it's like, yeah, it was a good movie. Like, I didn't think I would like it, but Brie really, my wife really wanted to see it. I'm like, yeah, we'll watch it. And I'm like, yeah, this was a really enjoyable movie set in World War II about something that happened, you know, the Nazis stealing all this art and these, you know, allies and Americans trying to recover it. Yeah. And it was a good movie. And like, you know, it, it gives me something other than, well, let's watch D-Day again. Like, I don't need to watch D-Day again. But this, this is something unique. Um, but yeah, that's an awesome story. 
Um, all right. So you and I were talking about this. So I'm going to hit my first story. You and I were talking about this earlier this week. Uh, so July 4th, which is last week, uh, obviously America's Independence Day. Uh, but July 4th is not just America's Independence Day. On July 4th, 1863, the city of Vicksburg, Mississippi, Vicksburg, Vicksburg, uh, under General John C. Pemberton, surrendered to General Grant after a six-week siege, one day after, after the Union's victory at the Battle of Gettysburg. And so, first of all, Vicksburg, it's funny that Vicksburg, because uh, when I was a kid, I would go to summer camp and uh, Phantom Lake Summer Camp in Wisconsin. And the cabins were all named after battles from the Civil War. And I was in the Vicksburg cabin. So we were like, Vicksburg, Vicksburg, mighty, mighty Vicksburg. I think that was our cabin chant. There was like a t- Antietam, which I don't think you'd want Antietam to be your cabin. Cause that's was there a Sumter? That's pretty horrific. But yeah, <laughs> no Sumter. Um, but Vicksburg was mine. It was Antietam. I'm I'm sure there was a Gettysburg. I just, that wasn't my cabin. But anyway, I digress. So Vicksburg, what's what's important about the Battle of Vicksburg is they were the last Confederate stronghold along the Mississippi River. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, called it the nailhead that holds the South's two halves together. And Lincoln said it was key to victory and it would be the North's lifeline to the South. Um and so when Vicksburg fell, that was the last stronghold the Confederacy had along the Mississippi. And so now the Confederacy was bisected east-west. And so you had your western states, uh, which I believe would be Louisiana, obviously Texas, Oklahoma. Um, Arkansas. And Arkansas. Uh, they would all be on one side of the Mississippi and then you have the rest of the Confederacy on the Eastern side of the Mississippi. And so the Western side couldn't support the East and vice versa. And so that effectively bisected the Confederacy. It also provides the union, the Mississippi river. So they can now bring as much material and men down the Mississippi into Western or into Southern territory as they want. Um, with I mean, essentially it's, no it's, opposition. Uh, the part of the uh, right. plan. Right, like blockade all the, yeah. the ports on the coast, which they did pretty easily. But then you had to you had to cut mm-hmm. down the Mississippi to to close it off. Exactly. And so now they control the Mississippi, they control all the ports, and they've cut this Confederacy in half. And so now the Western Confederate states are left to basically fend for themselves. What's so interesting about this and what you and I were discussing was everybody talks about Gettysburg, rightly so, because Gettysburg was a defensive victory for the United States, for the Union against Lee's army, because this was Lee's basically only stab campaign into Northern Territory. Prior prior to this, this uh, the summer of 1863, Lee was largely just fighting battles in Confederate territory and just defeating the Union armies that would come in. So this was Lee's first chance to really push into the Northern States territory in hopes of marching on Washington. So Meade defeating Lee at Gettysburg effectively ends that campaign. 
any chance of a Confederate offensive victory is over with that defeat. But Grant taking Vicksburg cuts the Confederacy in half and is just as important, if not more important, than the defeat of the Confederacy at Gettysburg. And But we never talk about Vicksburg. Like in popular culture and the zeitgeist, we don't talk about Vicksburg. We yeah, always talk it? about Gettysburg. And I just find it interesting because one without the other is kind there of an incomplete victory for the North. There are more books written about Gettysburg than any other location on the planet. Now, I heard that mm-hmm. at Gettysburg, so they might have been just... But I, I wouldn't. Oh yeah, typical I, I Gettysburg propaganda. Because yeah, there's been a lot written about it. Um, but so here's yeah. some what ifs, I suppose. What if the Union wins Gettysburg but loses Vicksburg? You know, and I thought about that, and I would think, at a minimum, it prolongs mm-hmm. the war. Because it allows the South to continue to support each other east-west. And so if you need, you know, an, uh, a unit or an army from Texas to come over and support, they can do that. So at a minimum, or vice versa, it, it, it delays what the if? end of the war. Oh. Possibly. No, I, I have another one. Once oh, you're go, done go ahead. answering this question. Oh, so but I mean, possibly if the and if the war goes on long enough, it, because the Union just can't quell the Confederacy, maybe that leads to a negotiated peace, as opposed to an unconditional surrender. Which then that's a very very different modern day that we live in. If we live in a negotiated peace with a legitimate confederacy. Uh, maybe they rejoin the union, but they rejoin it under their own terms. Um, or they continue to remain a sovereign nation um, because the war just went on too long. And, the, you, you know, the, the North was in no one danger of losing, but they were not, they just couldn't quite quell so that uprising long enough. other what if is What's what if other, the union if? lost Gettysburg but won Vicksburg? Well, that's a good one because, right, if they lose Gettysburg, and I guess it depends on how wholly they lose Gettysburg, um, there is a very good chance Lee makes it to Washington. And if that's the case, you again have at best a negotiated peace with the Confederacy because I guess if if Grant taking Vicksburg, yeah, but Lee gets Washington. Yeah. I mean that changes. So things. How about the how about the Union losing both pretty quickly? I mean, is there a one that's just well, the North sues for peace? Hmm. I mean, maybe. I, I think if if Washington's besieged and they aren't able to break that siege, yeah, I, I would say hmm. the North would sue for peace. Because Vicksburg, the Battle of Vicksburg, it was a, I mean, it was a six six week siege, but it's like a six month campaign. Um, yeah, it was six weeks before they surrendered. So I guess if you apply the same logic, roughly six weeks or so to besiege Washington, which would have been a fortress city, much like Vicksburg, um, that would have been. 
that's probably about how long you would have to get reinforcements to lift the siege before Congress or the president was looking towards suing for peace. So I don't know. That would be a very, very interesting to see how that plays out. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those, everybody talks about Gettysburg, rightly so. But we don't talk about Vicksburg as much. And it was just as important to the yeah, North's victory called it the over key the, the war. Huh. Yep. Um, no. Do you have I any other stories? You mind if I hit my next two? Okay. So my next one, and I don't know if it's a story, but July 14th is an important day in French history uh, because on July 14th, 1789, the storming of the Bastille took place. And the Bastille was, um, I guess you could call it like the Tower of London. It was like a fortress prison. Um, so a lot of time of political prisons were held there. Um, and so, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. And it was, it was kind of, it was held up as this symbol of the monarchy. And the symbol of the French nobility. Um, and so on July 14th, 1789, uh, the, the, a lot of the French revolutionaries and actually quite a bit of the French uh, soldiers, the army, because they were, they, the soldiers refused to disperse the, uh, the protesters and, and riots and stuff. And so they actually started to join the revolutionaries and they stormed the Bastille. And this is kind of what officially kicks off the French revolution. And so my question is, is France better at revolution than America? Practice. Because <laughs> they have a lot more of them and they last a lot longer than ours did. Um, so, you know, the storming of the Bastille and this led to the abolishment of the ancient regime, which was from 1500 roughly to 1789, including the Valois, Valois dynasty and the Bourbon dynasty. The Bourbon dynasty would be Louis the uh, family. Uh, it, they abolished feudalism in 1790. They abolished the hereditary monarchy in 1792. Marquis de Lafayette, before Louis was executed, was appointed commander of the National Guard, where we know Lafayette was from. Um, was He was a huge part mm -hmm. in the American Revolution and helping the Americans defeat the British. Um, because without French support, that's another good one. If yeah. the French did not support us, it's very possible we lose that war. Um, which I know Americans love to crap on France, but France is America's oldest ally and crucial in victory um, against yeah, the British in, in the Revolutionary wild. War. They are our oldest ally, and we've been at war with Britain multiple times. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we've been to war with Britain twice in their and, first forty years. We're like, yeah. let's let's go for and round two. Times of That's what's interesting because we always think, oh, well, Britain is our closest ally. Like, well, yeah, they're they're our close ally now. We didn't really start turning the page yeah, on that, that was, until the nineteen hundreds, though. Well, yeah, because there, there's <laughs> like, there's discussion of what role both Britain and France may have played had the Civil War lasted much longer. 
continue both to drag were interested on. in getting involved in yeah. some way and taking advantage of the situation. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. France has been our ally for longer than anyone else. Yeah. Well, and, and it, what's interesting, much of Lafayette. So during the, these first three years from 1789 to 1792, before Louis was executed, uh, Louis was commissioned by to be the commander of the National Guard, or he commissioned Lafayette to be the commander of the National Guard. Lafayette wrote during this time the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen with Thomas Jefferson's help, which was in part based on the Declaration of Independence. So these are very similar documents and this idea of classic liberalism and this idea of inalienable rights was was not it was not just an American idea. It was springing up on the European continent as well, uh, most notably in France. Um, and a lot of what the French saw in the Americans defeating England, that's what they wanted in their own country um, in regards to Louis the 16th. And then eventually they deposed him and then they had the first French Republic, uh, which didn't go so well, but, um, but that idea of, you know, classical liberalism and inalienable rights and the dignity of the individual was, was, you know, that was a fertile ground for that in, in revolutionary. Jefferson. I mean, he just missed that whole thing. He had been there just a, a mm-hmm. he left in September of 1789. So he was there for the storming. So yeah. he left the, after the first couple months. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. Mm-hmm. And, and that first, so yeah, the storming of the Bastille and those first couple years, 1790, 1791, things kind of settled down because it seemed like the National Assembly and the monarchy were going to be able to negotiate a constitution. Um, but then that didn't happen because a whole bunch of things. But that didn't happen, and that's eventually what led to Louis being deposed in 1792. And then he was executed uh, January 21st, 1793, by the guillotine. Here's what's interesting about the guillotine. Um, <laughs> Louis actually helped design it. So so when they were figuring out, like, uh, the guillotine's named after the guy that invented it. Um, I don't remember his first name, but Guillotin, I think, is his, that's how you say his last name. Um, he was designing it, and he said, hey, because of this idea of equality among all, the way we execute people should be equal too. And so it shouldn't matter what your status is. It shouldn't matter how rich you are. You should all be given an equal treatment when it comes to capital punishment. Because back then, before the guillotine was invented, usually the best way to execute someone, and by best, I mean least horrific way to execute someone was through a beheading. And so they chopped their head off with a sword or an ax. But executioners oftentimes would miss on that first swing and they would not sever the neck. And so sometimes they'd take like four or five hacks God, so, to uh, such a great to get image. the head off. And the person being executed could feel it and they were still alive during it. And so like the guillotine was invented to make it as painless as possible. And so they were like, he was like presenting it to the National Assembly and Louis the Sixteenth 
was like, well, hey, I see you have a crescent blade. Why don't you change that to an angle blade so that you can make sure it gets necks of all sizes? And he's like, <laughs> see, look at my neck. It's pretty thick. So that crescent wouldn't quite get it. So you want to make sure it's angled so that that way it goes right through in one fell swoop. <laughs> it's like, how ironic. <laughs> you were Dude, one of the first the to, uh, to test it out, Louis. Um, I believe so. Like until like the 50s or 60s, maybe in the 70s. Which, you know, it's interesting. It's, it is a brutal looking method of execution, but the execution itself takes a fraction of a second from the moment that it drops to the, to the head falling into the basket is less than a second and it's instant. Whereas today, you know, we have lethal injection, which is supposed to be as painless as possible, but we've seen without the right drug cocktail, they can last for like 40 minutes, an hour. And the, why don't they just the get a veterinarian in there? Like gasping for air. I mean, they do that literally know, all the time. I know. Seriously, a good vet would. I know. I don't understand it either. So <laughs> I'm not a fan of capital punishment. I really, I personally don't believe we should have capital punishment as a civilized society. However, if we're going to say that this is an acceptable form of punishment, it should be as painless as possible. And the things that seem the most cruel, like the guillotine, uh, firing squad hanging are actually the quickest so, and least painful. Let's dig um, into this a little bit. Okay. Capital punishment. And I agree with you. I agree with you. Old I'm news, hot takes. That's that's what we are. I think our objective should be okay. rehabilitate. Uh, our incarceration rates are ridiculous and it's just awful. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you're going to have capital punishment, you know, a lot of ancient civilizations managed to deter crime by making it the most horrific thing possible. <laughs> did they did they have something there? Like, is, yeah. is crucifixion effective at deterring? crime or rebellion is the blood eagle effective at preventing vikings from committing crimes against their people is pouring molten gold into the mouth of your enemy enough of a deterrent to make them think twice you know what's interesting though is is digging into these ancient civilizations um and there's a creator on TikTok, her account is called Pardon Me, and she's a doctor um, in medieval history. And so she talks a lot about punishments in the Middle Ages. And she says um, a lot of the punishments for certain crimes were um, monetary. You had to pay a certain fine for these crimes. I don't know exactly how what would the cutoff was from like monetary fine to execution. But there was this kind of like idea that certain crimes cost a certain amount. And so you paid your penance that way. They didn't have a prison system, definitely in the way that we think of prison systems, but, um, and so capital punishment in those cases was relatively low, but rebellions 
Because a mm-hmm. lot of the times we think of the crucifixions, even Christ, the reasons the Romans executed him was because upsetting the he order was, in their mind. Another one of these apocalyptic, yeah, Jewish prophets that was upsetting the order and could lead another rebellion, and that's why he was crucified. Um, you know, Spartacus's rebellion, famously, what six thousand crucifixions along the road. Um, you know, but that's what like the rebellions. That's where they're like. You can commit crimes. We have punishments for that. But you, you rebel, we're going to hurt you. And you're going to suffer before you die. Like, that's where they really got creative with it, it seems like. Yeah. But maybe not. Hmm. I don't know. But it is interesting that... And then, you know, Louis, that he was executed, Marie Antoinette was executed. Um, and then, you know, the First Republic lasted until 1795, and that was when the Reign of Terror happened. So that guillotine got a lot of use in those three years. At least 16,000 people were executed. Do they have Possibly just the one upwards guillotine? Of, or? <laughs> oh, go ahead. God, <laughs> really well oiled guillotine. No. Yeah, they keep swapping out <laughs> blades like they're razors. Um, at least 16,000 people were executed. Uh, Maximilian Robespierre uh, was a member of the Committee of Public Safety, which is the – that you talk about 1984. Yeah. They were doing it's that in the, the 1790s. We're just here for your safety, George Orwell had a Don't thought. mind us. We're just here for your safety. Exactly. And nobody's safer until we kill everyone. Um Upwards of 40,000 people were possibly killed, um, summarily executed while awaiting trial. So they might have just killed people before their trial even. Um, So that was until 1793, and then the French directory took over until 1799. And then they were overthrown by Napoleon Bonaparte, who's like, you know what? I like that empire style of thing. We're bringing that back. Um, So, yeah, France. I don't know if they're better at revolutions, but... They had a lot of them. And even then, up until the 1800s, there were still multiple revolutions into the, like, the 1850s, I believe. Because uh, Les Mis, um, the book, and obviously the really great musical I love, Les Mis, I think takes place in the 1840s, possibly 1850s. Um, so anyway, just yeah, there you go. Can't France. Get enough. Revolutions, guillotines. Just can't do it. Yeah. They, they said, you know what? America yeah. had one revolution. We're going to have like at least five. We're going to show them who's boss. Uh, and then my third thing I wanted to talk about tonight was dumb presidential deaths. And the first one is Zachary Taylor. And I was just looking up silly things presidents did this week. And this came up and he overdosed on cherries. Zachary Taylor, president of the United States. Uh, In 1850, at the July 4th celebration, so celebrating Independence Day, apparently he was just mowing down on cherries and washing it down with iced milk. And uh, after the party, this gave him cramps, nausea, dehydration, and that's what he eventually died from. He's only president for 16 months. Um, Yeah, he died from eating too many cherries, which is mind-blowing to me. Like you get shot. So here's here's something that, that you'd like to. I don't. I just okay. read it. All right. When either of us is elected president, here's what we're going to do. Okay. 
We're going to do our our okay. inauguration, and then there's going to be a dinner. And then, you know, because you're the president, yeah, you can like ask for stuff and having a party and be like, just bring me a massive bowl of cherries. And would you bring me like the coldest milk we have and just see if anyone Mm -hmm. knows what's about to happen. Should be like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like the white house chef knows, like he has a book. He has, he has a, he has a book handed down to him from all the white house chefs going before and, like a tome. It's like, oh no, 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 no. They ask for cherries Saying and milk. No to that. That's one we can refuse. That's the like Secret Service tackles me. <laughs> sorry, no bonus. more cherries. Yeah, sorry, giant eagle. You're not killing yourself today. Not on my watch. It's just like it just shocked me. Because you know, I <laughs> I don't know. I just don't understand how that happened. How you could eat too many cherries and die. Um, and then the next one I want to talk about was William Henry Harrison. This one is probably more, more well-known. So William Henry Harrison has the honor of being the shortest serving president. He only served as president for 31 days. So from March 4th to April 4th, 1841, that's shortest presidency in the United States. He also had the <laughs> longest inaugural speech in oh my presidential goodness. history, almost two hours. So he got inaugurated on March 4th, 1841, gave a two hour presidential inauguration speech. And then like he walked in the inaugural parade. He had like a receiving line all outside. It was all cold. It was all wet. Um, Did not wear a coat or jacket, which when your mom says, hey, kid, you know, wear your coat or jacket or you'll catch death of you outside. Listen to the story of William Henry Harrison, because uh, on March 24th, so a few weeks after that inauguration, he took his daily walk again without his coat or hat. This is still winter in Washington. Got caught in a rainstorm, no coat or hat, caught a cold. So the doctor gave him as treatment laxatives, bloodlettings, and castor oil. And you know what castor oil is? Castor oil is to introduce vomiting. When I was a kid, my grandmother would give me castor oil if I was sick. I it was supposed to speed um, up labor. To make me vomit whatever it was that was making me sick. Huh. I think it can do that too. Yeah. Yeah, it serves <laughs> a lot of purposes. It, none of them work. But, um, I don't know, it did induce vomiting. It you didn't go into labor though, right? Maybe better. But, um, but, yeah, the doctor gave him, I did not go into labor. I did vomit. I mean, I was six, so I don't know what was supposed to happen. Um, diagnosed, then eventually they diagnosed him with pneumonia because that's what he had. And then they gave him opium <laughs> to treat his pneumonia. So <laughs> shockingly, he died on April 4th, 1841, one month after he took office. Uh, so you might, all right. So I know people have their issues with medical science today, but. Thank God we don't get sick and the treatments are bloodlettings, castor oils, and opium today. Like, well, hold on a second. You may not like your antibiotics or vaccines, but a they're a whole lot, lot, lot better than <laughs> those options. <laughs> we do prescribe. You know, you're yeah. right there. Yeah. 
And that's not been good. That's not been great for yeah. America. So maybe we need to kick that opium habit once and for all. Well, that's interesting, right? Because the opioids we prescribe, like Vicodin, I think, and um, morphine, oxycodone, morphine was invented as a way to get people <laughs> off of heroin. Or no, heroin. Heroin is invented to get people off of morphine. That's what it was. So, like, people are, too many people are addicted to morphine. What are we going to do? I got an idea. Heroin. That'll fix it. (laughs) It's slightly less addictive than morphine. So, I don't know. I don't understand prescriptions. But I do know I'm glad that my grandmother... I no longer have to take castor oil every time she I get didn't sick give you opium or laxatives or bloodlettings. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe she did. She did rum. give me hot toddy. She would do the uh, – she'd give me rum to, to put me to sleep. Oh. Um, yeah, my mom did not care for that when I stayed at grandma's house. Uh, that's yeah. fantastic. So stuff. that's it. That's all I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's some good stuff, but uh, no, I have nothing to I add. Got, unless you have anything else you want to wrap up with. Well, those are my two stories. Thought I had more. Maybe I do in the back of my head, but we're good for now. Okay. Well, well, with that, then thank you guys for joining us. And if you've learned anything today, wear a coat when you go outside in the winter. Wear a hat and coat, because unless you want to end up like William Henry Harrison, and Apparently. watch your cherry intake because it can be deadly. So, yeah, and then uh, I can't wait to see the remake Miracle of the, movie of the White Stallions of the what is it? The Miracle of the White Stallions. Yeah, that that might be a pretty good one. Like I would absolutely watch that. Um, yeah. But thank you guys for joining us uh, for this episode of Dad Bond History. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did making it. And uh, be sure you guys like, subscribe, follow us wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. We are also on Twitter, mm. Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok and YouTube. Uh, thank you guys so much and have a great day in history. 